0: Content warning. The Tiger and the Dragon is a 19th century horror pastiche audio drama. It will contain references to colonialism, crime, firearms, the occult, and period typical racism, misogyny, and disablism. It will not contain any themes of sexual assault, but will contain violence, including mentions of violence against women and unborn children. Please do check the more detailed content warnings in the show notes, and look after yourselves and each other. the tiger and the dragon. Episode 4 The Saddle Store. We reached Kabul without further incident and spent a day or so there restocking. I've always liked Kabul. Racing mountain air, splendid views, my sort of people. Alas, all too soon we had to head north into the mountains of the Hindu Kush. We were to head over the Salang Pass, which is the usual route, but to diverge while we were up there. Luckily it was summer, so passage was not too difficult as it might have been, but it also meant the particular tribe of Pashtuns we were looking for would have moved into the higher mountain pastures. Our orders were to exercise stealth and caution when we approached the territory, which I suppose some political wallah thought might have made things easier, but I overruled that, as it was a damn fool idea. The Pashtuns knew those mountains better than we ever could, even with local guides, and would have a bead on us before we could get anywhere near them. Better to go to their chieftain as British envoys, heads held high than spies. Our Mr. Alikard agreed. I reckon the idea of sneaking around offended his pride as much as it did mine. See, if they didn't just murder us when they first clapped eyes on us, and we were accepted as guests, then under their code, the Puchshanwali by which they live, they'd be forbidden from harming us. Melmastia, they call it. Even an enemy who comes to the door of a Pashtun asking for hospitality will be welcomed and protected. So that's what we did. Basically knocked on the gates of the village as if we'd popped round for a cup of chai. Before long, we found ourselves led past several mud-brick curtain walls and through the streets, and finally brought before the chieftain in the reception room of his house. The chieftain was a great beady-eyed cove with a bushy beard, peaky nose, and a jaw you could crack rocks on. A fair few of his teeth were missing or broken, making him quite a sight when he laughed, which he did a lot. His folk treated him with deference, I'd say, almost fear, scraping before him in ways I'm not used to seeing from the hill people. Myself, I found him unsettling, but I couldn't have told you why at the time. My passion isn't the best, and I didn't know the dialect, so I was grateful for the guide we'd brought to translate. They assumed we'd come to speak about matters political, and behalf of the Angresi and they offered us fine food and drink, and other things even I'd rather not discuss in front of a lady such as yourself. We'd been given a decent briefing on what previous envoys had come to discuss, passage to their lands and trade and so on, and I think I made a fair showing of it. Ah, Mr. Alicard kept his trap shut during talks, which I was glad of. He accepted any food and drink offered to him, but somehow, mysteriously, it always ended up gone without him having apparently consumed it. Bloody good sleight of hand-tricks, I thought, hoping our hosts hadn't noticed and been offended by it. When we were finally left alone to sleep, Mr. Alicard voiced his concern to me, quietly like. He thought the chieftain had no intention of letting us get out of the mountains alive. Nor did he believe the chieftain was all that he seemed. I agreed, said that he counted from giving the willies, and asked what he advised. That noble brow of his creased a bit, and he said he had no experience with Afghanis. Though a little with Mohammedans in general whom he trusted to be honourable in battle, up to a point, but did not enjoy the company of at all. I suggested we make a strategic retreat out the back door along with our guides, laws of hospitality be damned. Mr Alicard added that, intrigued as he was by the exact nature of our host, he had no reason to remain among these Mohammedan pigs, and would be quite happy to go. Honestly, even I balked at that one. Pigs of forbidden meat, you see, It was quite an insult to our host's.
1: I understand from my nephew's studies of Mr. Alucard's history that he was held hostage by the Turks as a youth. And may, understandably, have something of a grudge against their co-religionists.
0: Yes, I suppose that would account for it. Hmm. So, a few hours before dawn, we made ready to escape. Nobody stopped us. In that hard to find your way out of a mud-brick village while everyone's asleep? Our mistake, really. Too easy. As we got out into the mountains and away from the village, a strong wind rose and blasted dust into our faces. Out of the night, a terrible voice demanded of us in Pukton, where we thought we were going. As you can imagine, I had no bloody idea what was going on, so I went for my peace, for all the good that was going to do. One reaches for the familiar in times of trouble, I suppose. That was it for our two guides, anyhow. They shouted to God to protect them and fled off into the hills. I suppose they might have made it back alive. Couldn't blame them for cutting out, really. Anyway, I did dwell on the desert as long, for as I live and breathe, our Mr. Alicard dissolved into a cloud of bats and promptly found himself being buffeted and thrown around in the swelling sandstorm, which was beginning to shave the skin off my face and hands. The great voice, which I could now recognise as that of the chieftain from the village, informed us that it was an indestructible afrit, son of dust and flame. The flock of bats chittered back, it sounded a lot like laughing to me. The voice continued as it would tell us what it told those who came before. It would offer no safe passage to the British through these mountains, take no money to guard the high passes for us. That we had offended its hospitality by fleeing like thieves, and now our monster would be torn apart and scattered to the four winds. The bats tittered again, clearly finding this all very amusing. Now, as you can imagine, I was sick of being sandpapered bloody by that wind, so I took shelter behind some rock. Out in the storm, that pulsating cloud of oily blackness and battlements was fighting against the howling wind. I took stock of my resources. I had my guns, and the monster-hunting kips nearby where the guides had dropped it. And there was Mr. Alucard, of course. I racked my brains for a solution, and then I remembered hearing a campfire tale from an old Uzbek rifleman about such creatures as we were now facing. He said that Jinns and their greater cousins, the Afrits, were vulnerable only in the form of a mat, "'and then only to holy things. "'I looked through the monster-hunting kit "'I'd been provided with back in the lodging house "'and found what I was looking for. "'At first I thought silver and gold bullets "'superstitious foolishness. "'A waste of money for the silver "'and too damn heavy for the gold. "'I'd not inspected them very close the first time, "'but now I did. "'I saw the silver ones had crosses notched into them "'and the gold ones were engraved in Arabic. "'My Arabic was even more rusty than my Pashtun, "'but I could tell these were from the holy book, "'the Quran.' They sometimes write the verses as sort of uh, calligraphy pictures, you see. Much like the old monks in England used to make pages of the Bible look all pretty with gold illumination, but without any marginalia of monks or rabbits or snails up to shenanigans. The verses fit quite neatly around a bullet, it turns out. Very artistic. Wonderful detail work. Well, I thought if anything was going to do the job, this was it. I chambered a few rounds into the first thing I could grab. One of those new short magazine, The Enfields probably a prototype fresh from the workshops by the looks of it, and with a glance up at the burgeoning cloud of black bats, I stepped out into the storm. I gave that Ifrit chieftain a piece of my mind, calling his name and invoking the customs of honour and bravery, and prying shame upon his obvious intention to harm a guest that caused us to have to flee. I called him a coward for attacking enemies clearly weaker than him, and insisted he face us fair and square as a man in human form. Well, that wind dropped away immediately, and the flurry of sand coalesced into the chieftain, who drew his sword and bellowed at us in a rage that, even in this weak form, he would easily defeat us. And then he charged. I heard a chittering behind me, and felt the wind from hundreds of tiny wings sweep past and reform around and between me in the chieftain's sword, which I saw sweep through them as if they had been smoke. And I heard, among the whispering of the wings, a hissing voice, something like, You had better have a plan. At which I nodded. You must think me mad, Miss Seward.
1: <laughs> I am reserving judgment. It is all quite far-fetched, but then so is some of what my nephew has told me. I did not think Jack mad when he told me of the Count, of Mr. Alucard and or Miss Westenra.
0: I'd scarce have believed it myself, if the story had come from someone else, but I saw all these things with my own eyes. I know for certain I did. So, yes, there I was, surrounded by blackness, and I... Heard Mr. Alicard's voice tell me I should... Do whatever you are
2: planning before our adversary finds his way to you.
0: Well, he didn't need to tell me twice. I put the rifle to my shoulder and aimed as best I could in the circumstances, expecting the accuracy to be off because I wasn't firing lead. The blackness around me shifted, revealing the chief in the scarce few feet away, and to the left. I wheeled, aimed, and fired before the fellow could react. The bullet pierced his heart, and I fired a second in close succession. I saw him stop, astonished, and then crumble to the floor, at which Mr. Alicard fairly came apart in his eagerness to pounce on the prone form and maul him, lapping and consuming and destroying.
1: How monstrous!
0: An apt description, Miss Seward. He didn't get his fill, though, for the chieftain's body crumbled into a pile of sand, which sank and spread out until it was nothing more than part of the ground, leaving Mr. Alicard spitting grit out of his toothy mouth. (laughs) He returned to the form I was used to seeing him in, and burst into hearty laughter. (laughs) Then he strode over and clapped me on the shoulder, commending me on an excellent fight, and a devious bit of trickery in goading our enemy to make himself vulnerable. He'd abandoned all pretense of being a man, and informed me I was the best human hunter he'd ever seen. I seethed internally at the condescension, and said nothing, but shot him a look which only made him laugh harder, and bare his fangs before insisting I show him the gun. Which I did, because, as I said, it was one of them new ones. So that was it, then. Mission accomplished. It took us a few days to find our way back out of the mountains without the guides, but I'm no stranger to the high country, and it's dashed handy having a companion who can fly out to spy terrain. On the return journey, Mr. Alicard had clearly decided he was going to entertain himself by being a right royal pain in the... in the neck. (laughs) Ha! He spent the journey teasing and baiting me in a most irritating manner about my incarceration, tricking me into revealing how I'd got there and then insisting that it would be a great dishonour to a hunter of my calibre if I did not avenge myself on my enemies directly I returned to England. And I did not find myself disinclined to agree.
1: So it is Mr Alicard who is the one who drove you into taking arms against Mr Holmes?
0: Didn't drive me to it. Just confirmed what I knew I wanted to do. Your Count, he's an honest-to-goodness monster, you see. He knows what he is. The Professor, the same. Devious, murderous genius. But you know where you are with him. And me? Well, I know what I am. Do you know who the real monsters are, Miss Seward? It's the Holy Joes. The ones who commit bloody genocide on the natives, ban their customs, conquer their lands, and, as the icing on the cake, claim it's all for their own good and enlightenment. They order folk like me in the lower classes to do the shooting for them, but it's your right honourable is and your viceroy that's that are calling the shot. At least I'm honest about my crimes. Well... When it suits me. (laughs) It's blackguards like me that keep this empire running, so they can wash their hands of it all like Pontius Pilate, and don't you forget it. Now, my dear Mem Sahib Seward, as my story is now done, might I be permitted to make good my escape? I don't suppose I can stop you. Very gracious of you, I'm sure.
1: As the colonel spoke, he produced a cheap silver cartridge pen and a card from the pocket of his jacket, and wrote something on it. After I had assented, he made a small bow and presented the card to me, which I took. At that point, we were interrupted. Anna! Anna, my dear, there you are! I've been looking for you all over. I invited that Italian violinist I told you about, and would you believe he's actually arrived? You must come and meet him. Elspeth, uh, you must meet Kunwaran, here. At this point, I turned back to the colonel, but he was gone. I think I saw a shadow slipping across the moonlit garden into the night. But it could have been a trick of the light. Upon the paper was an address. I placed the card in my purse and thought nothing more of it. Then I returned to the party, where I spent the rest of the evening in idle chatter. In all honesty, I was not altogether certain that I had not fallen asleep on the veranda and dreamed the whole conversation. A little later, the violinist revealed himself to be Sherlock Holmes, pursuing a notorious thief who was also attending Elspeth's party.
2: The thief!
0: ladies and gentlemen is none other than but
1: that's an entirely different story of which i'm sure you'll be able to read in the times before long now i must leave off for i have filled several pages with this letter already i hope it entertains you suitably i remain as ever your loving aunt miss anna seward
2: dear aunt anna please forgive the shortness of my letters as i rarely have long to write I hope you, father and mother, are well. I read your last letter with intrigue and more than a little worry. I certainly hope the entire matter was a dream, although it seems too vivid to be so. Your colonel is quite correct when he says you have a talent for running into dangerous rogues. You've clearly had a lucky escape. I have not been able to make contact with Dr Van Helsing, despite repeated efforts, and I pray for his safety. If, as your letter suggests, he is still in the country, he must have hidden particularly well. Otherwise, matters are much as normal here at the hospital. Hoping your uncanny luck will continue, your nephew, Dr John Seward.
1: Dearest Jack, do not trouble yourself over the shortness of your letters. I understand that you are very busy. Regarding my previous, it seems that I was not dreaming at all. Out of curiosity, I wrote a letter and sent it to the address Colonel Moran gave me, and he has replied, explaining that after our discussion, he went directly to the political gentleman he mentioned to report back. They were quite surprised that they had assumed him dead. Apparently, Mr Alucard had not been seen since the two of them had parted, when the ship they were travelling on came into port at Southampton. I wish now I had the presence of mind to ask the Colonel in my letter to find out, if he could, the whereabouts of Dr Van Helsing. The political gentleman informed him he was free to go, as long as he kept a low profile and did nothing stupid. I do not think he will do anything of the sort. I'm not altogether certain why he has given up his revenge on Mr Holmes, but I do wonder if he also suspected he was being manipulated by Mr Alicard, as I did. I suppose we will see. I remain, as ever, your loving aunt, Miss Anna Seward.
2: Dearest Aunt Anna, it is no wonder you drive father to distraction when you so freely and easily give an insane criminal access to your home address. I only hope you are correct about your colonel's behaviour. If you find any reason whatsoever to believe you are not, I urge you to move to safer premises at the earliest opportunity, and please, under no circumstances, attempt any further conversation with this fellow. Your deeply concerned nephew, Dr. John Seward.
1: "'Dearest Jack, I am touched by your concern for my safety. "'But really, you are beginning to sound very much like your father. "'As it happens, the Colonel and I have already continued our discourse "'and have developed quite a fondness for each other. "'In fact, we intend to marry as soon as possible, "'which should afford me some degree of protection from Mr Alucard, "'as the Colonel can provide. "'It's all quite humorous, is it not? "'Your father is, of course, absolutely livid.'" Despite any appearances to the contrary, I remain your loving aunt, Miss Anna Seward.
0: The Tiger and the Dragon is a Satogram Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. It featured Jennifer Noir as Anna Seward, Lou Sutcliffe as Sebastian Warren, Beth and Floyd Wiggins as Elspeth, Jonathan Kidger as John Seward, Henry Prestige, as Sherlock Holmes, and Paul McDonough as Mr. Alicard. Editing, soundscaping, and score was by Lewis Sutcliffe, with additional mastering editing by Jem Hawes. This episode used sounds from freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings, and transcripts, please see the show notes. If you enjoyed this little pastiche, please do leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice, in the times of London, or beneath a rock on the side of a mountain in the Hindu Kush. Thank you for listening, And may you have a delightful day and an untroubled night.